0: Stehen!
1: This is the New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic, and unfortunately, I am not joined by Matt this week. But um, I am very uh, pleased to have on the pod for this um, this very uh, special episode sixty nine. You have episode sixty nine, Mark Marlowe, the uh, author of. The Jackalopians, A Modern Tale, which is a a really, really good satire um, novel that uh, was published in 2022. And I I read, um, it had been on my radar for a while. Mark has been on my radar for a while. And I finally, over the summer, sat down and read it. And honestly, one of the uh, most impressive, best written novels to uh, come out of our scene in the past, you know. Well, to to come out of our scene, frankly, and you know, as someone who uh, for whom satire is near and dear to his heart, I um, I really enjoyed it, and I was uh, pleased to see that I'm uh, I'm not uh, I'm not out there alone carrying the the flame of satire to the uh, the dissident masses. So uh, welcome welcome to the pod, Mark.
2: Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, that's very high praise. So that means a lot to me. Thanks for those kind words. Um, and I had no idea this was going to be episode 69. So <laughs> it's an even greater honor.
1: There you go. Yeah, it's, uh, it's the magic number. Yep. But yeah, no, it's uh, when I, you know, when I first kind of like, heard about the jackalopians and you were describing it i, I believe enoch powell uh not the historical figure yeah. but the uh the twitter personality wrote a review um on aristophanes is uh the bullfrog i, I believe that's the uh the um substack that uh where he reviews books it it came to my attention that there there is a satire out there that it's you know a, an ambitious you know project, and it really piqued my interest. You you have a very interesting cover of something that looks like a a rabbit, but it has horns uh, as antlers rather, and uh, that is a I've learned since you know reading this novel that that is a jackalope.
2: That's right. Uh, yeah, did you know what a jackalope was before you read this novel? I did not know. I mean, like, I've heard the
1: phrase. I've heard like jackalope. I assumed it was just some sort of like insult yeah. or something <laughs> Like you call someone a jackalope. But, yeah, uh, actually,
2: that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Well, you lived in New York your whole life, right? So maybe, more or less, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So um, yeah, the jackalope. I guess. Well, I can start in talking a little bit about the book, but the jackalope. I assume many people who would be interested in listening to this podcast may not have heard that. Um, But it is a kind of mythical creature that lives out in the Western United States, um, a rabbit with antlers, Um, the whole background of this is explained in my book, um, which is a serious book, by the way, Uh, I think, (laughs) I don't know that I did myself a great service in naming a book, The Jackalopians, A Modern Tale, um, and then having a big picture of A rabbit with antlers on the cover. You tell people you wrote a political book that really exposes some of the big issues of our times. And then you also tell them it's called the Jackalopians a modern tale. And they sometimes just think you're schizophrenic and then quick move to block you. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so the Jackalope, it's kind of a mythical creature. It's like Bigfoot. Um, It's kind of this American original type thing. Um, It's different, I guess, than Bigfoot in the sense that Nobody actually thinks it's real. It's kind of this product of roadside America that was created as like a tourist gimmick in the 1930s. Um, And my book just takes a kind of spin on that idea, um, which I've always seen myself as being a real symbol of the historic America, the America that's getting lost and destroyed by the 21st century through the Biden administration through the black lives matter movement, the COVID lockdowns, and all of these real attacks on the historic America. I've personally always seen the jackalope as kind of a symbol of the America that's being lost. Um, that's probably a position that's personal to me and that not that many other people can relate to, but I tried to put it together in a real relatable, interesting story. Um, so just kind of generally, because I'm assuming probably many people who are listening to this podcast have not read the book. Um, But it's kind of a fun, satirical look at the contemporary world. Um, It's kind of sprawling, absurdist adventure story. Um, And it starts out, it's about a guy named Dan Smith, who was a junior associate attorney, Um, much like the guy that Dan (laughs) Baltic always talks about bullying on his Twitter account. Um, I actually wrote this book. It's kind of serendipitous. I wrote this before I had any idea who you were. Um, so the junior associate part is purely coincidental, um, but it's about so it's about this guy who's kind of living his, his life um, mm-hmm. in a not very great, but, you know, perfectly getting by for 2021 bug man type existence, uh, living in a small apartment in Washington, D.C., looking at porn, masturbating, uh, trying to get over his breakup with his girlfriend. And he all works. the classics. Yeah. <laughs> And he works at a big law firm, just working long hours, doing uninteresting stuff, surrounded by liberals all the time. Um, And this guy, kind of in this spiritual malaise, through a, uh, a mishap on a Zoom call, he comes into contact with this group called the Jackalopians, who are these this kind of secret society of underground right-wing professionals like him working in the Washington DC scene during the COVID era, but they have this secret society to basically drink and have fun together. Um, It's spun to him as a, like a political society. But then when he goes, he realizes that it's actually just mostly about worshiping this jackalope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as kind of a, a symbol of like of the America that's being lost. Um, and so that's, just, that's the basic setup of the story. It's, yeah, you know, I would assume most would believe it's a kind of far-fetched story, but I actually think it's really true to life. Um, most of the people who I've talked to who have read it have um, praised it for being actually realistic, which I think is a great honor for people to say because it's an unlikely story. Um, but it does really get to all the issues of our times. I think about BLM and COVID and really the kind of spiritual malaise that most people are living through.
1: Absolutely. And that's part of why I think the Jackalopians is so, uh, so unique. So special is that it is a somewhat satirical novel that satirizes the post-COVID and COVID era. And that is just something like novelists. It's really hard to write, uh, to keep up with current events. So I I feel novels are always a few years, maybe decades even behind. Whereas, I mean, this is, you know, frankly, your novel is some of the first um, attempts to satirize in in novelistic form and literary form. The um, the COVID era and um, what how how did you find that process? Because one of what I see as one of the intrinsic challenges of satirizing uh, COVID is the you know how crazy and absurd it already is. So it's kind of like how do you satirize a, an environment where people are like. I'm biking outside and wearing <laughs> a mask. It's like it's already like insane, but you uh you did a good job of it. So uh, how how did you find that process?
2: Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Um, I think it's it's an interesting issue, and it's I think something that's relatively easy to do poorly. Um, so I'm happy that you thought I did well in it. Um, I think that one of the ways that people fail in this. kind of like the Babylon B type model. Um, I don't think the Babylon B is very funny. I think most people our age probably don't think it's funny either. Um, Where I think the problem with a lot of that stuff is that it's trying to exaggerate what the left is doing and saying like, wouldn't it be crazy if they took this position or something? Um, But all of those All of those examples that they use end up, like two years later, becoming rigid left-wing doctrine that you can get fired from your job if you don't believe. So you you can't out satirize them or out absurd them because everything they believe is already completely ridiculous. So I think I tried to take a different tack with Mm. my book where I didn't necessarily try to overstate what they're doing. I just tried to state in clinical terms, what they actually did. And I think when you put it that way, it really shows how insane that whole time period was. And I mean, how our, how insane our world still is. Um, like there was a great quote, which I couldn't, I tried to find it in advance of this, but I couldn't find the full thing. Mm-hmm. But it was from Tolstoy talking about war and peace, um, where he said, it is not a novel still less is it a history um so he he was basically claiming that his book which is clearly a novel um that it was it was part novel part history but also neither um without ever really claiming what it actually was um and but i i think that's kind of how i see the jackalopians in a certain way because in a certain way it's just a record of what, what people were doing like there's a scene where Dan, the main character, encounters a Cuomo sexual during a BLM <laughs> riot, <laughs> um, and I think the the whole Cuomo sexual movement, is something that the left would probably prefer nobody remembers. But there yeah. was a time in for a few months in 2020 when they were all um, talking about being like sexually attracted to Andrew Cuomo because of yeah. his perfect handling of covid um and just this
1: <laughs> <laughs> is the craziest thing yeah like i i knew a girl during that time who said like uh i'm a you know like who expressed you know a sexual interest in andrew cuomo and i was just like this is insane
2: yeah and so i think that you really need to remember that like part of the whole issue of pushing back against these people is just to remember what they've done in the past because they often just disavow what they've done in the past so partially I think the book is just really building a historical record um and the the humor in it because even though it is a a serious book I think that covers a lot of important topics um it is, uh, at heart, I think, a funny book. I hope it's funny. Um, the humor in it comes from Absolutely. just pointing out how crazy these people actually are and not trying to exaggerate or satirize in any kind of unrealistic way.
1: Exactly. What um, what would you say you're... I mean, before before we get to that, I, I, I want to highlight that there's just... It's just so refreshing to, in a weird way, to read writing that takes place and explains this sort of, um, work from home. Um, you, at at the beginning of the, you know, the COVID thing where people, you know, weren't sure, can we get close to each other? Can we not? And I, I believe the protagonist and his girlfriend break up over this issue actually. Yeah. And, um, and later on she finds a covid boyfriend that she you know bro essentially cheated on him with and you know bro she she started cheating on him before she broke up with him and it, it it does kind of like you i think what you have here in you know the part of it before it gets uh to the part where there's the uh, the blm um kind of like scandal event and you know, it's kind of the narrative gets turbocharged in the snapshot of like the whole COVID nonsense. You've captured a sort of like very strange period in American life, where people were, you know, just. Uh, I mean, like I, I knew a girl with a. a you know, wasn't a girl. I was, it wasn't my girlfriend or anything, but I I knew a girl who had a COVID boyfriend and she's just like, Oh, this guy's, you know, in my building. So (laughs) (laughs) that was like, I remember like during COVID, like I was, you know, I was single then and I was on the apps and like suddenly I had women who were just like, it's incredibly horny. And they just, like they just wanted to come over and, you know, hook up. And it's it's like this is something that like in norm, during normal times you know you don't get offers on like dating apps to be like, "Can I come to your place uh without meeting you? It's just it yeah. just as a guy that just really doesn't happen very often, but like during this um you know period and during covid like it's like you know it was a very. Strange social phenomenon yeah. and the way that you've kind of captured the you know uh the enormity of it in the you know this novel and as well as like the continuing kind of enormity of it because uh so the novel starts out with um the protagonist Dan Smith, he's a lawyer he um essentially like almost accidentally almost doxes himself by because he's on a Zoom call and on the Zoom call or on a on a Teams call or a Slack call or whatever. And there's like a pop up on his screen that is like, thank you for contributing to Donald Trump. And it's funny because that is like exactly the type of thing that like if you know, many frogs or whatever are, you know, afraid of. I, I've, I've, yeah. you know, you know, almost signed into work calls as Dan Baltic and it's like it's you know it's interesting that we um you know in the jackalopians in your novel we have a um yes a, a portrayal which you know in in some respects is not even satire it's not even it is a realistic portrayal of the covid era which is itself almost satirical uh even in even in its realistic portrayal so uh kudos to you there it's not really a question. It's just, uh, was going on about it, but, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but just to, you know, pivot to, uh, not pivot exactly, but, um, what is your, your process for writing, um, writing both like, you know, just fiction, but also something that is going to be, you know, somewhat humorous or, or what have you, What's your, you know, I like, for instance, with, uh, with Nutcranker, I prefer, I enjoy a style where I employ dramatic irony and I like to, um, kind of have a situation where the reader and the author know that things are a lot crazier than the protagonist or just the characters necessarily understand. And, mm. um, What, um, you know, what's your process, I guess, is what I'm asking here.
2: Yeah, so, well, so for my actual writing process, um, it was kind of interesting because I wrote this book really quickly. Uh, So I started it in sometime in September 2021, and I finished it on New Year's Eve of 2021. I remember um, writing the last few lines, just as the clock turned over. Um, which was kind of uh, nice and dramatic. The last word actually that I wrote, um, in the year 2021 was the word cleavage, which, (laughs) which appears, um, in the last couple of pages of the book. So I, I technically finished on new year's day, but you know, let's not split hairs. Um, so I wrote this book extremely fast. It was actually at a time too, when in my regular job, I was very busy, um, And I, you know, I have a family, I have children who were, uh, still young, but even younger at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't have a lot of free time to write. So I basically just wrote the entire book late at night, usually between the hours of 10 PM and 2 AM, um, just like pounding it out. Um, Mm -hmm. so really I wrote this book kind of in a, in just a burst of passion. I think it just came to me all of a sudden and it really, um, Yeah. It just, I don't know. It really encapsulates basically everything I think about every subject. (laughs) Um, Like it, it covers a lot of things about politics and religion and modern life. Um, And I really just saw it as kind of my statement on everything that's important in the world right now, Um, Mm -hmm. which is like, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a lot to say, but yeah, it really, it really just all came kind of pouring out. So I wrote it like that really quickly. I I sketched out a pretty comprehensive outline of the whole thing before I did it. Um, and in the end, the outline was really true to what the actual book was. All you know, all the same plot points are the same. Um, there were certain characters who didn't appear in the outline, who um, kind of blew up more in the book, or people who were just mentioned in the outline that then I found actual Good uses for them in the book um, when they were really just started off as a subsidiary character, um, but really for this, I just kind of wrote out the whole thing beforehand, like seven pages of just what what's everything that's going to happen in this book, and then the writing process was just basically staying up late at night every night for like three months, just filling it out. Um, so it was good. It was uh, a <laughs> uh, your real labor of love uh, because I have lots of other things to be doing. So uh, I could have been sleeping or doing anything else. And I wrote this instead.
1: Now it's, it's interesting to me that you are a a late at night writer guy because I have always, to the extent that I can, I like to write in the morning. Um, Sometimes work makes it difficult, but if I can, you know, pull it off and, Like on weekends, if I'm writing, I'm writing in the morning. And um, if, you know, during a a weekday, if I can get to bed early the night before and wake up at six or, or, you know, God, I don't think I've woken up earlier except for a flight in recent times. But (laughs) uh, if I can wake up at six and get some good writing in, that's, um, that's a win in my book. Because by the end of the day... I just kind of feel like there's so much going on in my head, so much stuff I have to remember from the day so much, you know, kind of like, Oh, what am I doing the next day? Whereas, um, in the morning, like, yes, I know what's on the agenda that day, but if I wake up early enough, I know I have a buffer zone before people start emailing me and expecting a response. So I can just kind of like, you know, have that time to, to write. And I, my mind is still unpolluted. It's still, I just woke up. I don't have, you know, the kind of the, you know, concerns from clients or whoever, whatever racing through my head yet, you know, maybe memories of it or, you know, knowing what is going to be on the table that day. But, um, you know, the, the, The slate is clean, so to say, but, uh, but you, uh, you prefer the evenings. So um, how, how does that work for you? Because like, at the end of the day, like, are you, um, you know, not tired? Or if you are, I guess you just power through it.
2: Yeah, um, well, it's different when you have kids, of course, because when sure, you have yeah. kids, yeah, you know, I'm never going to be able to wake up earlier than that and be <laughs> before then. Um, so yeah, that's just a losing battle. I think for me, I mean, I've always been a nighttime person anyway. But really, for me, this is the only option if I ever wanted to do it. Um, and really, I, I mean, for writing the Jackalopians, I didn't find it to be difficult at all. Um, it it really the whole thing really just kind of poured out of me so I never had that problem I think right so right now as I mentioned before we started recording um, I have been working on my second book Um, that one congratulations thank you thank you Um, that one's a little bit more difficult sometimes I you know lose focus at the end of the day or don't want to do it or something that that one um, it's also uh, it's a very different book it's more complex in some of its issues. Uh it's a little more difficult to write. I think Mm. it will be just as easy for the reader to read and enjoy. Um, But it's a little bit more difficult to write. So that one's a little bit of a slog, but at least for the Jackalopians, it was really really an initial burst of energy that just I just pushed through and this was like all I cared about. And then during the day, um while I was doing anything else, I was just thinking about, oh man, I can't wait to get home and write the Jackalopians.
1: (laughs) Nice. Nice so you noted during your um you know uh, talk on uh process that you um you like to storyboard things and outline them and when i write when i'm writing fiction i i do do that but um at a certain point i like for i've i had to at many junctures change the outline just because when I was there with the character, it just, the outline didn't, you know, what I believed the character would do when I got to that juncture, having like written the character into being, I realized like Spencer wouldn't do that. The protagonist from that character. So how, how do you find that in terms of you write an outline and you since the beginning of the outline you've built up the characters you filled in their their psychology their you know details did they follow the plans you set
2: uh yeah for the jackalopians definitely for my second book i've revised it a lot more um kind of as you say but i still kept to the basic outline
1: okay yeah,
2: but yeah, for the Jackalopians, it real it really was extremely true to the actual story, and it was basically, um, the, there were some things I filled out. Like I don't know, I think I um I don't think the Jackalopians is a very long book, but I think it's probably on the long side for the whole dissident lit scene. It's three hundred seventeen pages. Um, there were certain pieces that I expanded hugely from the uh the outline, like the whole flashback scene to haji who's one of the main characters is um his college experience and the outline this was one chapter in the final book it was like nine chapters and like 70 pages um so like, oh, things yeah. like that i expanded a lot uh certain certain important characters um did like the character of katie who was the girlfriend that the guy had during covid um wasn't included in the outline at all and that that whole thing just kind of expanded out as I was writing, um, which is kind of interesting because I think a lot of people in their reviews seem to fixate on that whole relationship aspect. And I think that was probably one of the most memorable parts of the book. Um, but in the outline, it was just kind of hinted at in like a sentence. So there was a lot of fleshing it out. There was a lot of parts about you know th- this one thing happens and then another thing happens later. And yeah. you need to, as you're writing, you need to kind of fill in the connector. Um, so in uh, there are a lot of uh, some of the kind of subsidiary cast of characters. I would, as I was writing, I would find better ways to plug them in in certain areas. Um, but yeah, overall, I think, you know, my writing strategy for this panned out pretty well. It was, yeah, it gave a lot of structure to write it. And I think the problem for people who haven't, written anything before but want to is you know sometimes to be too unstructured like you have to think in a certain way like not like an artist like you have to actually map things out in an autistic kind of lawyerly manner um otherwise you know you can just go off and never really pull it together
1: yeah absolutely it um yeah I mean there's like a certain like a novel is a union of discipline But uh, also uh, artistry, and it's—I mean—that's one of the reasons I feel that you have so many creative and talented people who um, never write novels, couldn't write a novel, and are like scared to do so because it's just it's such a disciplined act. So um, it—it's something that you know you need to kind of have both um, qualities. I feel. And especially to be, you know, a professional that works long hours and, um, writes in the evenings, like, um, you know, kudos to, to you for pulling that off because it's, you know, it's frankly tough to write a novel, even if you don't have a demanding job, but you know, really tough if you do. Yeah. Or the, um, I mean, you've mentioned characters, that are um, were not necessarily uh, supposed to be big characters or didn't even exist at all until you started writing like Katie, which I was a bit surprised by because I saw the end and I don't know to what extent we want to give spoilers or not, but I saw Katie as important for the narrative arc of um, I I guess you could call him, if not the, the uh, hero of the novel, the, uh, the, Protagonist in a certain sense, the guy whose POV we're assuming, Dan Smith, he um Katie seemed important to his development.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's how it turned out in the final form. Um okay. I think so just so I think the kind of the basic structure of it is that we're we're following the point of view of a guy named Dan Smith. And then he gets involved in this group called the Jackalopians and he fi- starts finding out about all of their many adventures. Um, the Jackalopians are led by a guy whose name is Haji LaRue, which I thought was a funny name when I wrote oh, it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh but yeah, I like that. Is, uh, is, uh, you know, so Haji, you know, it's an Islam reference, but he's like a white Chad type guy um, who Haji is just kind of his Jackalopian title. Um, he, I think, is kind of the hero of the novel um but in a sense it's following the arc of both him and dan kind of in parallel tracks as they are forced to confront the real evil of the modern world and then the whole drama of the novel is seeing how that manifests itself in their in their individual lives um so the ending um it kind of ends in a climax with Dan and Katie, which this is the problem that's been following Dan around for his entire time through the novel where he broke up with this girl during COVID. And now he's basically just simping about her and (laughs) just thinking about her constantly and wanting her back, even though by the time the action of the novel is really going on, it's been like, you know, a, a year and a half, I guess, since they broke up. Um, so it's really, so part of the, the, uh, one of the storylines is Dan's ability to overcome being a simp. And then the other storyline is kind of Haji's more heroic ascent, but they're both kind of ascent in their own way. Um, And I think the, you know, the, the Katie thing that kind of developed just as I went along, like that, the ending was originally different when I was planning it out. Um, It wasn't going to have that final ending, but as I was getting further into the novel, I thought that that would be kind of a good way to wrap up that whole story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that was, you know, a, that was a very, you know, an ending that, you know, helped to tie everything together and you uh, kind of see the protagonist um, demonstrate personal growth by, you know, spoiler alert to by turning down Katie At the end, and embracing a um, you know, uh, if not embracing religion, embracing a a more um, you know moral uh, lifestyle, and that um, yeah, I thought that was a very well done ending, and I was wondering um, characters such as you know Katie but also like some of the other characters were, uh, you know, favorites of mine and were, where did they come from? So I think uh, Haji LaRue, like that's a great name. That's a great, and you, you characterized him very well. I had a real sense of who he is. I had a real sense of who Carnahan was. And one of the ones that grabbed my attention the most was Todd Sneedman, who there's this kind of Spencer Grunhauer like figure who um, attempts to kind of, um, not even attempts to, he like almost in some sense succeeds in taking over the Jackalopians uh, group <laughs> and wresting control from Haji LaRue. And he, he's, he does it because of uh, a fit of pique about um, LaRue's uh, refusal and the group's refusal to accept some arcane point of Jackalopian <laughs> lore and terminology. So, yeah, where did uh, where did Todd Sneedman come from? Yeah. And did you enjoy writing him?
2: I did enjoy writing him. I think Todd Sneedman is probably my favorite character from the book, just because I think he's probably the funniest. Um, but, yeah, I think he is kind of a Spencer Grunhauer type figure. <laughs> um, it's a type of figure that we probably know all too well, if you're on Twitter or involved in any kind of right-wing politics, uh, you see a lot of these just completely autistic people around. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, it's a lot, I think it's a lot like the uh, the protagonist from Nutcranker, um, but just as more of a minor figure. Um, so I, you know, he's another one that I kind of spun out and found new ways to integrate him into the story as it went forward. Um, But I do think just the archetype of the just weirdo autist is really the gift that never stops giving. Um, I think some of his scenes in the book are really the funniest. Um, And it, I mean, it, it is really just going to, to like a contemporary archetype where it's the guy who just destroys everything because he cares so much about this one thing that doesn't matter at all and that nobody else really cares about like the whole point of the jackalopian group is just all these people like to just go and like get drunk yeah exactly and he is just fixated on this point of doctrine um to the point that he ultimately will just destroy everything to have his way on it
1: yeah yeah just you know a concern about his own personal power but also um his own sense of like Well, I am right, and because I'm right, I have to go to the absolute wall on this particular issue or point. And I believe the point was um, whether a flying jackalope is a real jackalope. And he characterizes it as a a heresy, and um, he a heresy that's like propagated. Or uh, of of a class of jackalope heresies that are expo- espoused by people called Wolpertingerists. Is that yes, right? That's right. Is is that a real thing or? Yeah,
2: yeah. You can Google all of this stuff. This is all real. Really? Um, well, well, the Wolpe, so the Wolpertinger is a real thing. The Wolpertingerist heresy is made up for purposes of the book. Um, but um. Flying jackalopes are real. Wolpertingers are real. Um, and it's I. What I think is what I think is funny about this is because I think his point is that the group. Um, this is really getting into the details of the book, but that in the past the group had denounced this type of creature, the Wolpertinger, as like a heretical type of creature yeah. that's not recognized by the Jackalopian group. If you look at a picture side by side of the Flying Jackalope and the Wolpertinger, they actually do look extremely similar. So he's pointing out, like many autistic people, he's pointing out something that is actually true, and he is actually right if you're taking their premises as stated, um, yeah. that they should all oppose this thing too. But what he's missing is the fact that they just said that earlier because they thought it was funny, and now they just want to like get drunk and like yeah (laughs) and so he is really missing the forest for the trees
1: yeah the social context he's just like not and so that is you know very similar to spencer grunhauer and nutcranker the though you he might be right the sneedman might be right in respect of the actual you know thing the act the the context is one in which they pursue vindication in a manner that is just incredibly annoying or just you know destructive, yeah. and you know means that like even though you were right in on doctrine, you're wrong because you're you're gonna lose because yeah, you've uh, you know failed to behave um, normally.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think there's actually a lot of interesting parallels between Nutcranker and the Jackalopians. Um they were actually released the same week. Uh, oh so really? My, yeah, I didn't know So, know that. Yeah, yeah, mine was released November eighteenth, twenty twenty two. I think yours was uh the eleventh, I believe. Yeah, okay. So seven years. Yeah,
1: Veterans Day.
2: Yeah. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> cool. I mean, pretty close. And I I mean, I think they do they're kind of on similar topics. Um, the Sneedman part of my book, I think he was my favorite character because I think he's the funniest, and he was the his scenes were the most fun to write because it's just so easy to lampoon people like that. Um, but he, I mean, he's re- a relatively minor character, maybe not minor, but maybe kind of like second or third tier. Um, so yeah. it's not the focus of the book, um, but it is the same type of character as in Nutcranker. and they are. I mean, there are two books that are really timely, really. Kind of ripped from the headlines um, that are just about kind of all the absurdity of the modern world. So I think there's a lot of strange serendipity between these two books.
1: Absolutely, I mean that's one of the reasons I felt a real kind of kinship, a real sort of uh, you know draw to the Jackalopians. Part of which was well, there are not too many of us out here on the this side of the internet, you know dissident twitter whatever you want to call it who are um writing satires uh or you know writing you know stories that are in some respects comic or what have you that are also simultaneously like dealing with the uh, uh the current year in some way or form and um yeah so i i saw Immediate parallels, and um, you know, it's. I I hope that you know, as uh, time goes on, we'll we'll see more and more, and that uh, you know, we are the pioneers of a, a growing uh, field, because you know, frankly, the mainstream, the traditional publishing industry, they um, they would never publish something like Nutcranker or or the Jackalopeians just because it's uh politically you know not on the right page for them. Um even though like I, I suppose some you know liberals could read uh our novels and maybe it wouldn't be entirely clear what side we come down on or I mean at least in the case of Nutcranker I might think not for be, yours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: And I don't I know that not... many liberals will read mine, but
1: true. Yeah. 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 Uh but I mean that being said, like for you know various reasons we would not uh, make it in the current mainstream publishing world, which is to say that I don't think there many of the satires, like, uh, in order to actually satirize the current year, you really have to be outside of mainstream publishing because it's it's really hard, though I mean, like so, I think Mike White, the guy who did White Lotus, which is a TV show, obviously not a, uh, a novel, but um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to actually be able to criticize the system when you're in the system. And um, as a result, I think, you know, the, the best and the only real satire is going to come from where we are. So I think, you know, we're actually in a very good position. And I, you know, I hope, and I, I suspect that many others will will join us here in writing, you know, not only kind of uh, heroic um, stories about, you know, um, protagonists overcome overcoming a dystopian future. Uh, that you know, we will also uh, have more satirical novels that kind of reclaim the the mantle from the mainstream and traditional publishing world and uh, do what they can't do.
2: Yeah, I think that's an important point. Um, so the first thing I would say, just everybody who's listening to that, um, if you bought Nutcranker and liked it, then you should certainly also read the Jagalopians because they are spiritually very similar. So quick go and buy it now. Um, Absolutely. But- my book, um, yeah, but I mean, separately, I think that's all right. I think, I mean, we're saying that our books wouldn't be published by a mainstream publisher, which I think is certainly correct. But I, I don't think either of our books is at all radical. Like, I think no. my book is much more moderate, probably than than I am personally. Um, there's like nothing in there that would be out of step with anything a Republican mainstream republican would have believed even in like maybe 2008 let alone like the 90s or something um, absolutely it is it's you know it's unpublishable now because it's opposed to all the shibboleths of the left but it's really actually you know i think a perfectly moderate book um but yeah i mean in terms of other otherwise yeah i think a lot of part of what inspired me to write it too was that I think there's a lot of people in our scene who are writing genre fiction um like sci-fi horror things like that which if that's what you're interested in that's great like I certainly think that anybody should be pursuing the things that interest them um but it doesn't it's never really done that much for me and I think that really if you want to write something meaningful, you have to kind of grapple with the actual issues of our time. Um, And that means basically just writing about the modern world and what's going on now. Um, So there's, there's a lot of debate in some of these kind of dissident literary type outlets about how political art should be. Um, I don't know that I would even call what I've written art. I think it's entertaining, Um, Mm. but I, um, I mean, it's clearly political and it clearly has a political message, but I think that you have to write that kind of thing. Um, Like you people, when they're complaining about art being too political, I think they're thinking about people like Ben Shapiro writing a spy novel or something like that. They're thinking of, of the cringe aspects of it, but they're not thinking about all of the great political art that's been written like 1984 and Atlas shrugged, you know, They may have their problems, but these were clearly books that made a huge impact on the world. Um, Some of my other favorites, like The Power and the Glory by Graham. Oh, yeah, I love that uh, one. About like the Catholic, the persecution of the Catholic Church by the socialists in Mexico, um, which was something that was going on at the time that he was writing the book. It was something that he observed personally, but it's clearly a book with a political statement. Um, and it's also high literature that's really entertaining to read and really deep and actually has made, I think, made a profound impact on my own life. Um, but things like that are, I think, are what we should be aiming for. Um, that to me is more worthwhile, both of the limited time I have to write something and the limited time that other people have to read absolutely Uh, to write about things that really make an actual impact on the world and that speak directly to the, the issues that we all face in the modern world, as opposed to just purely creating something that's a fun aspect of a genre.
1: Absolutely. And one further distinction is the mainstream publishing industry. They, their heroes will not be the same as our heroes but they can still tell heroic tales they can still tell you know they can still do sci-fi in their own way they just you know switch who the heroes and villains are they can still do fantasy they can still do even like detective stories or whatever the one thing they can't do is satire they can't satire because satire involves a kind of connection to the current political moment. And you have to be able to kind of, uh, poke fun at the shibboleths of the current year. And they can't do that. (laughs) Hey, I mean like they, to an extent, you know, yes, the Mike whites of the world, there are probably a few novelists that have are semi mainstream that do that. um, Sam Lipsite to an extent maybe used to be one. Uh, there's a, a few others I, I have been meaning to uh, read. Um, uh, Fuckboy by Sean Thor Cor- Cor- Corot or something like that. He's I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, he he is published by the you know mainstream press more or less. Uh, there's a, like a whole controversy over whether he ripped some indie people off. I'm not going to weigh in on that right now on this pod but um regardless so like there there's a little bit but in like in general they really you know if you are in the mainstream entertainment industry publishing film TV what have you you have to if you are satirizing the current year you have to do what Strauss calls writing between the lines you have to you know You know, insinuate your critiques without stating them uh, baldly, because if you stated them baldly, you would be excommunicated. And what, you know, we can do outside of that world is we can just actually have like a, you know, swing for the fences satire. And, um, you know, frankly, I'm, you know, I'm excited by what this uh, sphere will produce. Because, you know, to an extent, um, you know, I I don't know to what extent, if any, but to an extent for me, I was holding back when I wrote Nutcracker (laughs) because I had pretensions of it being, you know, successful in the mainstream publishing industry. And now that I know that I have a readership and that, you know, I don't need to succeed in that world, um, I can actually just, you know, really like go balls to the wall. And I, you know, I'm looking forward to that. And I, you know, I hope you do too. in your next novel, which I believe you've already finished, but I'm I'm sure it's, you know, quite impressive. And uh, many of our listeners who are writers and and writing satires, just, you know, go for it because there's so much it's just, uh, you know, there's, so much material out there and it's so juicy. Just, just get it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I completely agree with that. I don't know that I held anything back in my book. Um, I think if anything, I may have overextended myself in parts, <laughs> although there's, I mean, there's nothing that's really too edgy or anything, but I, you know, I really, I, I never even considered Submitting it to any other publisher, I always just assumed, like, why not just publish it myself? I'm not going to waste time, yeah, like shopping it to agents or something. Um, when you can just put it on Amazon and just blast it out. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think that there's a real lack of, um, of kind of effective satire and books kind of addressing the modern world from our perspective. And that was the gap that I was trying to fill with this. So hopefully more people will be doing that. Um, it's scary because we're up against bad people. Um, and the more, you know, the more truth you write, the more blowback that there could be by people who don't like being the subject of your attacks. Um, but it's, true. it's not the worst, it's not the scariest thing. There's other worse things you could be doing. Um, and ultimately, I think it's worth it. I think you have to kind of leave your mark on the times that you live in and especially, I mean, I have kids, as I said before, I want to be able to leave a Testament that even while I was living in this world, I didn't agree with it. And I have this now piece of physical proof that I can show to my children and future generations to say that I stood against the times.
1: Absolutely. And one thing, I don't know to what extent you subscribe to this or have thought about it, but, um, It's a lot easier to be a dissident artist than a dissident uh, activist, shall we say. So at the end of the day, though, like, you know, it's, you know, totally possible that people come after you for, you know, things you say on an arts and culture podcast or things that you write about in your novels. There's a sense of I feel like even if, you know, someone tried to cause an uproar, it's like, well, it's a novel it's fiction it's you know and though you know people will try to like one unquote cancel each other for for anything there's a sense that um um I, I feel like if you're not really in the arena trying to like you know if make political change happen on the ground like that's when these people start going crazy so that's when they get activated like Mm -hmm. if you're you know trying to like organize votes and stuff of that nature or you're trying to put up like a political candidate then they're like oh damn well you know uh soros calls up the 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 troops and gets them like mobilized but if it's you know if it's a novel um i don't know i don't um i think that like it's a little dangerous it's a little edgy but i think at the end of the day um we we have a lot of uh, a lot of leeway as artists
2: yeah we're protected by the fact that not everybody's going to be willing to read an entire novel just to find exactly yeah um and i think also i'm trying to i kind of protect myself too it's a thing that bronze age pervert talks about where he talks about that he deliberately named himself that because it makes his enemies seem ridiculous when they attack him when they are complaining about the threat of a guy named bronze age pervert i think it's kind of a little bit the same with my book you know
1: Oh yeah, if people absolutely. are going around
2: talking about how there's a new book called "The Jackalopians, A Modern Tale" that's anti-democracy. Uh, you know, <laughs> people are just going to laugh them off and yeah, think that they sound insane. Yeah, like
1: Nutcranker, the the threat to our our establishment.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's just not
1: you know, it doesn't really uh, pass the credibility uh, test.
2: No, and there are certain scenes that I deliberately inserted just because I thought that the idea was hilarious of some Politico writer reading these in the future, just trying to f- mine out little quips to be able to complain about it or write a hit piece on. Uh, I don't know that I would ever be important enough for them to do that. But I think it's kind of a funny idea when you think about some of the really insane stuff that happens in this book. Um, oh, absolutely. That, the idea that anybody could be reading this with an eye to smear it as fascism, I think, is uh, would be very funny
1: absolutely um one of uh should we get into the the actual kind of uh uh scandal that kind of ignites the uh the climax of the novel which is where um one of the the members of the uh the jackalopian club he accidentally so he has like a, a parlor trick to impress women, to first of all, his name is the Baron. He's like a um, a Colombian aristocrat. He is uh, Casanova type of guy. Very good looking. Women love him, and he has a um, a trick where he tosses a cigarette in the air, catches it, and puts it out on his tongue. And he uh, he's doing this for girls on the way home from some bar, and he accidentally like misses it. And it hits this um, kind of like in this house, we believe in science sign and se- winds up setting the sign on fire and he's trying to put the fire out. And then the people in the house come out and he, he runs away and he is later uh, branded as some sort of, um not only uh right wing vigilante but uh the people in in the house where they believe in science they uh they took the opportunity to capitalize upon this uh this event and they've uh, they've claimed that he's a member of the new ku klux klan and that he's they they've been attacked by klansmen and this uh this becomes something that the media repeats and it gets you know it gets a lot of attention and so suddenly a member of this kind of uh almost apolitical social drinking club the jackalopian uh order he uh he finds himself in the crosshairs of the um the you know regime whatever you want to call it and uh it's it's quite the the sticky situation wouldn't you say mark
2: yeah that's right that's a very good summary of the story and i think you know it's add the absurdity is added of course because this is like a colombian aristocrat yes Um, (laughs) not anything that you would imagine a ku klux klan member to be um but yeah that that's the that's the catalyst for the real kind of external action of the story that then involves, events kind of spin out of control and the whole Jackalopian group needs to find a way to somehow rescue him from um, all of this media attention. Absolutely. It's, it's a so, hilarious plot point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, again, it's something that's really highlighting the world as it exists today because, I mean, it's obviously silly and a little bit over the top but it's something that you could imagine happening um oh yeah like a lot of these hate hoaxes that we see aren't really that much crazier than this it just some other like some lady yells at a black kid somewhere and it gets caught on camera and suddenly the entire media is talking about this um it's the same basic issue that we've seen over and over. so it's real it, it really is it goes to speak to the the nature of the times we live in um but the whole the point of the book i think really it, as i said in the beginning it's about the arc of the two guys haji and dan and that it's you know, we spend the first half of the book talking about how not necessarily miserable they are but how dan is kind of stuck in this rot of just big law work porn having a girlfriend that he still is in love with Um, and Haji who we haven't really talked about yet is kind of stuck in a similar rut where he is by outward appearances a cool Chad who gets laid a lot um, but kind of inwardly, we learn that he grew up as a very pious Catholic boy, who then once he went off to college was so shaken by his experiences of the big city and the kind of libtard people who populate ostensibly Catholic schools, that it it shook him in his faith. And now he's basically become a nihilist who, um, while still, you know, right wing i guess in a sense is mainly just interested in you know having sex and getting drunk um and it's kind of the, the catalyst of the story then is this this experience with the baron where now suddenly things are real and they're really kind of confronted with the evil of the modern world and they need to find a way where life isn't all just about fun and games and going to fun jackalope meetings um it's it's also there's also real dark forces at play in the world and you need to really kind of understand your place in it and rise up to the occasion
1: absolutely i wanted to talk a bit about narrative format so a lot of this story is narrative that's uh delivered by scott to dan in a kind of um Retelling of the you know the history and the tales of uh, Haji Leroy, and um, uh, or um Haji Leru, or L- that's L- how I
2: pronounce it. All right. but I guess just spell. L- so
1: yeah, and in, in either case, so what what motivated you to use that uh, that narrative form as opposed to like a third person just kind of omniscient? Or a first person? What um? What was the the motivation?
2: Yeah. uh Well, that's a good question. I think this is maybe one of the weirder things about the book. Um. And just, so, just I guess so, everybody understands. So it's the book is narrated in the first person by Dan. Um. But then he once he joins the Jackalopians, he makes friends with a guy named Scott, who is kind of the third of the the main characters of Dan Haji and Scott. Um. And The huge sections probably the bulk of the book are told in scott narrating kind of flashback episodes to dan where they're just sitting around and he's telling him all about the things that happened with the jackalopians in the past and he's about all the important points of the story so um that is like a weird way to do things where all of a sudden in the middle of the narrator switches and it becomes the first person from a different guy's perspective who's just talking to the original narrator about a third guy. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I thought it was, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting in a few ways. So one of the things, just taking a step back, is one of the the immediate um, inspiration for for writing this book was, I read a story called The Jane Knight's, by rudyard kipling which hmm. is a short story uh it's quoted in the beginning of the book like there it's kind of like the epigraph epigram oh uh, yeah i, I noticed at, that at the beginning yeah. um so that's kind of a nod that i'm i'm i didn't just completely steal this i'm giving a little bit of credit um but the jainites is a story about um a guy a group of people of british soldiers during world war one who form uh, secret Jane Austen Society to like read Jane Austen books and have all these weird rituals uh, about Jane Austen as kind of a way to escape from the horrors of the war. Uh, it's a very good story. I would recommend everybody read. it. It's only, like, it's only like thirty pages, although it is written in dialect, so it's like Cockney. Like the whole thing is like <laughs> <old> gruv, <laughs> this kind of thing. Um, so it's it's a little bit difficult to read, but um, that was the immediate inspiration and it was my when once i read that i was i just kind of thought like well what, how would this be structured if it occurred in america in 2021 and that's kind of where the the idea for my book came from um but the j Knight is also kind of structured in the same way where it's a guy who meets this group and he's talking to one of the members of the group. And most of the story is this group member narrating all the things that happened in their past. Um, It makes a little bit more sense there because it's a short story. So it's like 30 pages and it's not that crazy for somebody to be talking for that long. But I I do think it's kind of an interesting way of structuring the story. And it, it was actually something that was done occasionally in those that same kind of time period, like the early 20th century late 19th century, mm. uh, like the book Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad is written entirely in the same way. Um, so just like the Jackalopians, it's like 300 pages of a guy talking to another guy and everything is in quotation marks. And it's just like, you know, completely defies belief that somebody would be talking for that long. But I think it's kind of cool, because it reflects like a, a type of Chad disdain for realism, and just like, I'm going to do this this way, because it's kind of cool type thing um, that you really don't see anymore. Uh, but Absolutely. for whatever reason, people were doing it in that time period. Another interesting example of this, a little bit different is a book Dracula, Um, Mm. which is written entirely as like diary entries. Uh, So I don't know. I think it's, I'm not going to write my second book like this. My second book is just third person, Um, Mm. but it's an interesting thing to experiment with that people used to in that time period, experiment more with these just like weirdly, bizarrely complicated ways of structuring a story. And I think if you, you pull it off, it's, a real flex because it's saying like i added this whole weird level of complication for no reason it doesn't really it doesn't really make the story better it's just a weird thing that i added but it's still good um yeah and i think that i think that hopefully that does, it doesn't detract from my book. no it's not just, at all yeah it's a thing that's like a weird kind of thing that people think like huh i wonder how, why i did that that's kind of weird um but it's still good The
1: really cool thing about that, from my perspective, is that you get to incorporate in a natural way different points of view. Whereas, you know, sometimes you'll have third person omniscient, but it gets close on one character, then close on another. And it's kind of like, well, who is really telling this story? How does this person know this? How does this person know that? or maybe it is first person, but then suddenly you're in like someone else's head or some suddenly. So this provides a kind of like a logically consistent, uh, world where you're in Dan's head, but you know, when Dan is, you know, listening to stories told to him by Scott, you know, you're receiving Scott's, you know, um, views his you know, you you're, you're seeing the world for that section from Scott's eyes so it it allows you to really kind of experiment with um combining multiple POVs in a way that isn't just kind of like um you know uh screw it we're just going to do it we we're, we're not going to explain why this you know there's a reason there's a reason why yeah. there are two POVs
2: Yeah. It's an interesting way to kind of have your cake and eat it too, where you're, you're using the first person point of view, but you're kind of uh, getting around its limitations in certain ways by just switching the narrator to someone else. Um, so yeah, I liked it. Um, I think it's important to, uh, to do it. Uh, we start out with Dan and then to switch to Scott rather than Haji, even though Haji is really the true hero of the novel, I think, because, um, Scott is another just regular, normal guy. Um, He's kind of portrayed as kind of a guy who's smart and understands all the issues of the modern world and probably has good based takes, um, but is a little kind of practical minded materialist, doesn't really have the the real inner spiritual drama that someone like Haji has. So Haji is, is really the, like the Ubermensch of the story. He's like the guy who really sees all the issues and transcends the modern world. But I, that's, I mean, like first person because yeah that type of person is unrelatable to most people so to be I think it's important it's filtered through the perspective of Scott who is describing this really cool guy um, without himself being the one who experienced all these things.
1: Absolutely and the um, the kind of so it kind of in some respects reminded me of uh, Nick Carraway's role in The Great Gatsby as mm-hmm. the kind of, like, relatable every man who explains this kind of um, fantastic story. And that is, you know, kind of how I viewed both Dan and Scott to a certain extent. They serve as these kind of, like, anchors for the reader into a, a story of, you know, people and personalities that are, you know, more, more unusual who, you know, who wouldn't really be appropriate as you you wouldn't have the great Gatsby with Jay Gatsby as the narrator, because that would just, you know, it would it would demystify him. Yeah. It would make him not as cool. So if like uh if Haji larue were the uh the narrator, it would just, you know, he'd he'd cease to be, you'd see all his insecurities, you'd see, et cetera, et cetera. It um it's better in some ways, I think, if you're going to write a novel like that, where the, uh, the close third or the, the actual, the first person is on not the, you know, the ubermatch, but on, uh, you know, the, the observer, the, the person who is the bridge between the readers and the, uh, the unapproachable uh, hero archetype.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I never thought about it in terms of the great gatsby, but I think that's right. Um, so yeah, yep, that's what I what I tried to do.
1: And you did it very well. Thank you. Uh, moving on to book marketing. So that um that's something that I, you know, before nutcranker, before new Right, I never even really thought much about that. But um, now I like I see that there's a whole there's an art to it. There's especially I mean, we exist in a world where you have the mainstream publishing industry that has, you know, a lot of ad spend and, and resources to, you know, help novels and what have you uh, reach their readers, their audience. And regardless, um, they they don't really seem to do a very good job of it, except for with the very biggest of big titles, and uh, for the um, the smaller presses, they they can't help you with that at all, really. So yeah. we're in a situation right now where artists, writers, you uh, you're kind of on your own, but you have the tools to do better to have more control over your sales more control over your you know the number of your readers your voice than ever before because through through twitter other social media outlets you can promote yourself and not only promote yourself but become your your ad campaign manager so like my whole you know um thank you for getting that nut line and and stuff like that and you know the various kind of uh uh you know promotional tweets that you know something like nutcranker gives uh lends itself to it um you know it it becomes something that you know frankly becomes a bit of an art form in and of itself at least for me uh so how how have you found your experience trying to market Jackalopians and, uh, what, uh, what is your, uh, your style, shall we say?
2: Yeah, I think that's all right. Um, and so my experience of marketing the Jackalopians has really been going on Twitter and just posting about it every day and trying to just get bigger accounts and other people Mm -hmm. interested. Um, I do agree. I think there's a lot of potential there, um that doesn't exist in mainstream publishing and that a lot of these other these other people aren't really going to promote you the way you can promote yourself. So really I mean going on Twitter the sky is the limit as long as you can get people to read your book. Um I think I've done fine. Um the you know every time you know it I mean it, it truly is a great honor anytime anybody buys my book because you know it's $17 you could spend that $17 on anything. And the fact that you decided to spend it on reading my book really, really means a lot to me. Um, And I think that that's absolutely great. So I, everybody who has bought the book, I am hugely appreciative of, Uh, I hope to sell a lot more. There's, I haven't sold nearly as many as I would like. Um, But really I think that's just all kind of getting a foothold in this kind of Twitter marketing campaign. Um, I don't know really, you know, I don't know where else I would go other than that to market it um but ultimately too i think that there's it's not just a book that should appeal to the online types um i myself am very online a millennial uh have been on the internet for a while um i kind of that's what most naturally appeals to me but i think that there, there is a a large segment of normies who would profit from this book too and would like it like there's no reason why your trump supporting uncle wouldn't enjoy reading this book just because it's fun and it hits on all the right notes that he probably supports too um so i would like to i would like to expand beyond twitter but i think that right now twitter probably has the best platform to do something like this um it, but you know, it's it's dangerous too because twitter while it offers great benefits. It also has the re- a lot of real downsides. Uh like you can really get sucked in on completely unproductive things on that. Um oh, yeah. You can spend yeah. you can waste tons of time just scrolling and so you have to be really intentional. But if you do it the right way, it can be good.
1: Absolutely. There um I I believe it was Tacos who said this and I, I forget on which pod exactly. But he said something to the effect of, if you want people to read your book, first get famous for something else. <laughs> and yeah. I um, I kind of took that to heart. And part of, you know, I love New Write. I love having these conversations. But in the back of my mind, when I was forming it, I'm, Nutcranker hadn't come out yet. And I realized, you need a platform to sell people your writing. And so that, um, you know, I think we have kind of unprecedented tools right now to build a platform, be it Twitter, be it like starting a podcast, be it, you know, I don't know, even, you know, starting a, my girlfriend was showing me, um, TikTok videos and saying like this woman's an influencer and she makes 5 million a year. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, i want to kill someone that's <laughs> <laughs> i can't fucking believe that yeah <laughs> but i mean it's it's true there's unprecedented access to you know um you know people's minds now and i think like to the extent that like it's a, a kind of dual mission of a, a writer these days is like build a platform so you can be a successful writer. And I mean, part of it is also so like there's just like there's so much that goes into getting your work out there these days. And I am frankly, I'm I'm happy with this model because it gives you more control, it puts it in your hands. But in some ways, do I wish we could rewind to the 90s where a novel like Nutcranker could be published? And I'd have like a publishing deal and an agent and you know, I wouldn't have to be a lawyer. Um yeah, that, that actually might be pretty cool. I I would, you know, ultimately have to, you know, do what my agents and you know publishers say, and I wouldn't be able to, you know, uh write as freely as I, I want to. But um yeah, it's kind of uh it's a real trade-off. But you know, in, at least in today's world, I wouldn't have it any other way. Because you know, if if you're a an author in the traditional publishing industry, if you have anything interesting to say, good luck saying it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, it's it's too bad about the whole um, the transition from the '90s when you had people like Stephen King or John Grisham who could just become fabulously wealthy, right? I think, novels and i think there's uh obviously there's downsides to that but it's still a much better job than like 99.9 percent of the public has otherwise so yeah you have to take the good with the bad um but yeah i mean i think that this is a good model for our time the other thing that's important is that if you're self-publishing a book as opposed to even going with a small publisher you do keep the copyright to that so a lot of publishing houses it's it's fine in the beginning but they don't necessarily need to keep publishing your book 10 years down the road. And if they decide to just take it out of circulation, there's nothing you can do about it. But if you just decide to run it through Amazon direct to print, you own the copyright and nobody, that's like, that's your property. You can pass that on to your children. It's yours and nobody can prevent you from just continuing to publish it, except maybe Amazon if they decide <laughs> to get your permission, but we're not there yet.
1: Yeah. I mean, one one thing I would urge um any listeners who are thinking about publishing deals you uh, you should actually you should not assign your copyright to a publisher. You should always try to hold on to your copyright. Um, it, uh, you know a good publishing deal is one where you keep your own copyright and they have the right to potentially publish it indefinitely. But also if it's been out of publication for a number of years, you have the right to then kind of buy it back. That is what you should pursue. <laughs> yeah. But uh, theres certainly but it's not more... always
2: an option. Yeah.
1: True. it's not always an option, and there are certainly more onerous uh, deals out there. So um, yeah, in any case, your ability to exploit your work uh, your will be markedly uh, you know, constricted. If you have a deal with a publishing company, that is certainly the truth.
2: Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think the point you made about delicious tacos, uh, that the best way to sell a book is to be famous already. I think that's definitely true. Uh, I would probably sell more books if I were already famous. But the other thing is, I mean, it takes a lot of work to run a podcast or to build up a huge Twitter account. Um, or any of these kind of things, they give you a platform to be famous already. Um, yeah, you know, if I had waited to do that, I probably never would have written a book. So I just yeah decided that, like, you know, might as well just write it and see what happens. <laughs> and Absolutely. maybe maybe it won't sell any copies. But um, even if it doesn't, I had fun. And I think that's a good mindset for people to have. If you set up too many roadblocks um in your path to before you're willing to actually to actually pull the trigger on something it's just a reason to never do it so um no that's you know,
1: that's very true yeah. yeah definitely a bias toward action is something that's helpful in pretty much any situation so yeah, yeah. for sure we're uh, we're getting on uh, a little over one and a half hours so i thought maybe we would close it out on a discussion of religion's role in the novel mm-hmm.
2: yeah so oh sorry no go ahead. Was, yeah yeah no so i was gonna say i would i would be interested to hear what you think about this um i i don't know whether the jackalopians is a religious novel or not um i've debated this point with my wife um we have different views on whether it is um but you know ultimately i mean i am a catholic i i'm a catholic convert um which many people uh i don't know catholic converts get a bad rap but i my, my family was historically catholic but my parents um very liberal raised me as an atheist, um, and I converted mm-hmm. to the Catholic church later in life for reasons that are very similar to what happens to the characters in my book. Um, and so I do see that, I mean, ultimate, I kind of see this as a religious book. I think the most literal message of it is that the Catholic church is your path to salvation. Um, but I I understand that most of the readers of this will probably not be Catholic. Um, will be people you, you I I don't really get the sen- I don't really know what your religious beliefs. I get the sense you're not a particularly religious guy. But like people like Dan Baltic living in New York City, having based opinions, but probably doesn't go to church every, every Sunday. I think there's a lot of people like that in our scene um, who would read this book, and it's not supposed to be alienating to them. There's Protestants, um, you know atheists pagans bap types all these types i think would still enjoy the book um but i personally am a catholic so i do view it as indicating that catholicism is the best path um and and that's really the track that haji in the book takes from being kind of a pious catholic kid to losing his faith to then kind of regaining it through uh, spoiler alert but regaining it through the the trial by fire that he undergoes once the Jackalopians become ensnared in a yeah. crime hoax.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What uh, what I found really interesting here was how um uh Haji's uh, path from being pious and a believer as a child, experiencing the hypocrisy of um the you know woke church (laughs) under people like father slippenstein which is a great uh, name by the way it (laughs) uh yeah and a great character and um then pursuing a life of uh nihilism of hedonism and i think we do see a lot of that um not just you know religiously but as we were talking about earlier i think a lot of like more bro types understand that this is all kind of bs but you know have just kind of said oh whatever i'm just gonna try to get laid as much as i can and make as much money as i can and to an extent that's kind of how uh, nutcranker ends but uh, that is not decidedly not how uh, the jackalopians ends because um uh, haji he um he goes through a process of yes, that disillusionment, but he experiences a sort of uh, reawakening of religious tendency when he becomes fixated on the jackalope, and he, you know, he venerates it as a kind of and stop me if I'm uh, wrong or if I'm mischaracterizing anything, but I I believe he venerates it as a symbol of uh, America, of an, you know of uh, heritage America, the the real America. And um, he venerates that. And, you know, but then he, you know, later in the novel, he, he realizes that, you know, though the jackalope is a powerful symbol, and though America itself is a powerful symbol, that, you know, ultimately, uh, veneration is a religious, uh, you know, impulse, and that he has to return to, uh, to the church. He has to return to, to God. And I thought that was a very powerful message, and yeah, I mean, I think like most people who read this will understand that it is a religious novel. It's it's about you know, and and again, stop me if I'm putting words in Mm. your mouth or you know misinterpreting, but I interpret it as um, a a novel about a man's uh, you know return to his faith.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly correct. I mean, that's how I interpret it, too. It's anybody can interpret it differently. But yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so I think the the issue with the jackalope is that it's not necessarily a bad thing to be really interested in. Um, it is a symbol of America. And the fact that he is wants to venerate this symbol of America is a very good thing, because, yeah, I I believe America is a very good place. Um It at least it was it's being turned into a bad place by bad people but the the america that the jackalope represents was a very good place whatever its flaws um so that is a very good type of patriotism that's coming from an important place for him um but ultimately it's no replacement for god and the you know he comes to realize which is what i've come to realize too that all all, all our problems i think are at root spiritual problems and that we are we've already lived through the death of god and now we're just living in the wreckage of what came after that so we had the enlightenment Uh, the age of science and reason and tearing down all of the old what they called the old superstitions to clear that away to create some kind of new more rational world Uh, the rational world that they created then gave us like votive candles for Dr. Fauci and um, like riots on behalf of George (laughs) Floyd so it wasn't really what we were promised we were we ended up it ended up all being replaced by just different more malevolent cults and you know, i think the book is pointing yeah. that out and that ultimately haji comes to see that and he sees the he sees the answer to that as being returning to the catholic faith which is the same answer that i see um i do like people like bap i think um bap i think i mean i you know, i think that a lot of bronze age mindset inspired a lot of stuff in this book because it really is identifying the same struggle that I I agree with him that the the struggle of our world today is a struggle inside the individual soul and that we're just being crushed down by all of these completely soul deadening impulses that want you to just be the guy who lives in the pod and eats bugs and never to aspire to anything greater than that. Um, So I, I saw at some point I saw my book as kind of a Christian Take on Bronze Age mindset. I think in the end, it didn't become that; it became something much different, which is much more interesting because it's better to form your own thing than just absolutely someone else. Um But also, I think you see the core of that. Um So I have a lot of respect for people like that. I ultimately don't agree with him when he yeah. attacks Christianity, but I uh, I think there's a you know I, I'll, I'll take him over a lot of other trad caths, like some of these people like Adrian Vermule or Sarah uh, who talk about how uh, Catholicism is really about supporting racial socialism and, uh, you know, and all this. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap. It's ultimately, I view it as a kind of Catholic book, but you certainly don't have to be Catholic to read it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly how I would characterize it as well it's, you know, certainly there's something in it for everyone. And um, it's, it's an enjoyable ride. It's a, it's a funny ride.
2: Thanks. Um, Before we go, I know we're short on time. Do you have a favorite scene or a favorite character? I'd love to hear if you do.
1: So yeah, I mean, my favorite scene is, I mean, perhaps somewhat predict, well, I mean, I have a few, but Uh, somewhat predictably i do love sneedman and i love the scene where he like finally is like gonna like put one over on them and he like forces them to give up the jackal to hand over like the uh the control of the the jackalopian order to him by virtue of uh blackmailing everyone (laughs) and uh yeah it's just it's kind of like a hilarious and like you know in some ways like sad moment but uh he's just so you know uh full of himself and thinks he's right and yeah so i I loved sneedman i um i thought the uh the katie stuff was done very well especially how she's like still seeing this kind of like abusive lib guy and like stringing dan along that was uh, i thought that was very artfully done so the yeah that the there's a portion where you describe, uh, well, certainly like all the media circus that surrounds the uh, the the incident, the the burning of the uh, of the sign. That stuff is done very well. The Father Slippenstein, when he's talking about when he's explaining to uh, Haji how uh he needs to um choose a subject for his paper who's more appropriate than thomas aquinas uh and the more appropriate person is of course some like african you know preacher who you know is uh, much less uh you know has produced a work of much less importance than uh aquinas yeah
2: quasi quaco yeah
1: yeah, I I don't know. Was that even a real person? No. Anymore? No. All right. Yeah. But yeah. It. Uh. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of really good stuff here, and yeah. It. Uh. The. Uh, the uh, another scene I was gonna say was how the bar. The scene where they describe the baron's uncle who's coming to rescue him, and how he like is you know one man army kind of like slaughtered hundreds of communists or something (laughs) in some great battle that I I thought that was hilarious yeah
2: well thanks uh yeah I mean it's, it's always interesting to give feedback like that and see what pieces resonated most with people I will say about that baron scene um that one I mean I was laughing for a lot of the ones a lot of the scenes that you mentioned but that the baron uncle scene Really, I was like, absolutely dying laughing as I was writing that um, that came to me. That was one of the ones that I didn't write at night. But it, I was out, um, my daughter was you know, a very young baby, and I was out pushing her in the stroller and was just going for a walk, and all of a sudden just started thinking about that whole speech that he's giving about his uncle slaughtering all the communists. <laughs> and I was just, uh just dying laughing, walking down the street alone, pushing the baby stroller and had to just quick as soon as we got home, just pound out that whole thing. Um, But yeah, I think that was, I think that was one of the funniest things. I read it to my wife right after I got home and just amazing Blasted it out and we were both just cracking up the whole time uh so yeah i love that um i think my favorite scene is the when haji falls in with the boomer uh motorcycle gang um I've oh yeah no that's, that's yeah that's good there's, too. there's there's a lot of good stuff to talk about everybody needs to just read it the jackalopians by mark marlow if you put that into amazon there's no other books with any similar <laughs> to that. so it's easy we... to find and you can follow me on twitter at jackalopians Yeah, we are going to promote it
1: uh, in the episode uh, show notes. We will, uh, you know, obviously uh, promote it uh, by tweet when the episode comes out. But you should all buy book, buy The Jackalopians, A Modern Tale. It is, as uh, Mark says, available on Amazon. Follow Mark on Twitter and uh, stay tuned for his upcoming novel, his second novel, which that's is right. uh, you, you are really a, a fast writer. You've got another one coming out very soon. Uh, uh, any, anything you want to plug right now? In uh, addition- uh, no,
2: that's it. Um, yeah. All I really have are my book and my Twitter account. So if you just buy the book and follow me on Twitter, you'll have everything you need. Um, but my, you know, keep, um, you know, keep out, keep a lookout. My second book will be re- it'll be released in, I'm thinking probably the spring or early summer of 2024. Um, It's going to be very timely, especially for the 2024 election. It's a very similar vibe to the Jackalopians, Uh, a very different story uh, with completely different characters, um, but it covers many similar themes. So if you like the Jackalopians, this is just as good um i think it's just there's a lot of humor there's a lot of serious stuff it's an outrageous plot um so keep a look out and it'll be released soon
1: this is going i'm predicting it now this is going to be one of the big novels about the 2024 election at least on our side of twitter i'm calling it here because um i i think it's it's gonna have a lot to offer
2: thanks i hope so
1: all right, uh, signing off now. But um, thank you for coming on, Mark. It uh, it was
2: great. Thanks, it's been a pleasure.